0: Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. Welcome to Bite Into It. Tonight, we've got Joe behind the deck. Good evening. Hello, and I'm Vanessa. Thanks for being with us. In Australia, we're used to regulators protecting consumers from poor company behaviour, such as misleading advertising and cartel activity like price-fixing. Tonight, we hear about research from the Consumer Policy Research Centre into an area lacking explicit consumer protections. We'll be exploring dark patterns. More on that later in the show. First, we'd love to hear some local news. Joe, what's been happening across the ditch? Apparently, New Zealand broadband... Broadbean.
1: <laughs> New Zealand Broadbeans, apparently. Yes, apparently. New Zealand Broadband upload speeds kick the MBN's butt.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, two consumer watchdogs have collaborated to compare the performance of New Zealand's ultra-fast broadband and Australia's national broadband network. Um, it's called the Trans-Tasman Measuring Broadband Report. That sounds riveting. <laughs> <laughs> Thrilling, I'm sure. I didn't actually read it. Um It compared 100 up, 20 down megabits per second plans on full fibre and hybrid fibre coaxial connections in Australia and full fibre in New Zealand. Full fibre only MBN Ultrafast against NZ Fibre Max plan and fixed wireless connections. So um, apparently Australia won on average download speeds, 36 megabits per second compared to New Zealand's 29. But... um, New Zealand went on uploads. Uh, Australian network was only able to uh, do four megabits per second, while NZ seventeen. There's some big numbers.
0: Yeah, I know. It's when you reduce these things down to their little megabits per second, it can sound insubstantial. But um, what that really means is, you know, when you're doing uploads, when you're running a business and sharing a and lot you're of data, creator, and, yeah, yeah. And you're publishing music and video and all these things it makes a massive difference. Um, It was also interesting to see that the percentage of households attaining average download speeds above 100 megabits per second is much higher in New Zealand than Australia, both inside and outside of um, busy periods, Uh, and that Australia... does okay on outages. They're they're only having about one point three per week against four point two New Zealand. I think they've got very different infrastructure yeah. challenges with their geography.
1: Yes, yeah, I do remember when I lived there that my uh, internet would drop out a lot more often than it does here. But mm. I can't. But you know, this was almost ten years ago that I lived
0: there last, so mm. can't speak for now. Look, it was an excellent report with quite a, a sense of humor. Um, I quote from it the multi technology mix connectivity used in Australia was not compared to New Zealand's fibre network, presumably because some sort of mercy rule kicked in, which is just sick. Yeah, yeah, it's bang. adorable. It's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, so, one of the other things that happened was that. Um, they explored the sort of levels of over-provisioning of services and and how that affected people accessing their full uh, broadband options. So in Australia, we've got a mandated higher level of over-provisioning, which I have real trouble saying. It's a full 15% um, thanks to the ACCC. Now, New Zealand retailers um, averaged out uh, that mark themselves and they put it at about 10%. But despite that, we're the ones dipping below um, New Zealand speeds during our busy times. So they're still managing to overachieve um, despite our targets being set broader. So that would be worth looking at a little bit more. The, this part of the report really
1: surprises me. Um, apparently, New Zealand wins in the competitiveness of plans offered. I'm really quite surprised by that. Um, because when I go home and try and get a, a mobile, a prepaid mm. mobile, the plan selection
0: is atrocious. Ah, so the detail in this is – well, that's where the devil is, isn't it? Um, it's that they're more competitive on the plans offered from the wholesalers to the on-sellers. Ah, right. But those on-sellers are then taking the cream and not necessarily passing that on to consumers. Thank you for clearing that up. Yeah. Because
1: it's... I'd found – all, all options of telecommunications, they're quite difficult. Mm.
0: So the the wholesalers have offered speeds of up to 300 megabits per second um, on 100 megabit per second wholesale fibre connections at no extra cost to retailers. So that's huge. In Australia, by contrast, NBN wants to increase prices, and they've wanted to for decades – sorry, for for the decades to come, on plans of 100 megabits per second and faster at a rate of inflation plus 3%. So really, really different approaches there to the market.
1: Well, I guess there's no moving back to Aotearoa for me unless I decide to start a business where uploading – very large files yeah. is
0: is my thing. There you go. You and Kim dot com. <laughs> oh goodness, that's a name I haven't thought heard for, for a while. <laughs> while. That's what I think of when I think of using masses of data in New Zealand. Yep, yep. Mega <laughs>
1: upload. Yeah.
0: that's right. That's right. Uh, so we've we've covered some local news. Let's head further than across the ditch. Let's head all the way over to the Americas, um, and to the USA. There are two antitrust bills going through Congress right now. Uh, They're both aimed at reining in anti-competitive behaviours. So one of them is the American Choice and Innovation Act, ICO, and the other is the Open App Markets Act, the OAMA. Um, And I'm just going to quote a bit from The Verge at the moment who's been covering uh, movements there. The measures contained within these two acts would bar major tech companies from recommending their own services and requiring requiring developers to exclusively sell their apps on a company's app store. So, ICO um, would put constraints around someone like Amazon from favouring its Amazon brand products over those from independent sellers. So you know, put constraints around their ability to prioritise them in the search results and in the recommendations bars and that sort of thing, just just have some sort of transparency around that. Uh, by contrast, the Open App Markets Act would be targeting um, people with, say, app stores, so your Apples, your Googles. Um, to, and what they want to do is force those companies to allow users to install third-party apps without using their app stores. Hmm. I don't know how I feel about that
1: from a security
0: perspective i
1: I think one thing I like about um i I use Apple for my phone, and one thing I like about that is is knowing that Perhaps there's been at least some sort of minimum security vetting of something that I'm putting on my phone, mm. but presumably there's lots of different ways
0: to to um, you know peel that apple I guess yes yeah 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 there'd be a, a lot of protections that you could put in place yeah and requirements that's a good point um, without necessarily every time you put a payment plan in your in your app you know the the store taking thirty percent yeah yeah yeah. Definitely some wins to be had there. What's also interesting is that John Oliver has jumped on board and is campaigning on this. Now, he's he's got a bit of a history of this. He's um, He hopped right onto the net neutrality um, positions years ago and really helped galvanise some uh, c- consumer awareness and support for the principles of net neutrality in the way that only John Oliver can, you know. Gosh, I, I remember
1: when <laughs> net neutrality seemed... Like something that was possible.
0: Yeah, yeah. Pretty challenging environment, but uh, there are antitrust measures going on all around the world. It's it's more than a trend. I mean, we're seeing we're seeing um, definitely people reflect on Microsoft's experience, and we might talk about that a bit later in the show. Triple R. This evening, um, we wanted to get into some research. Last week, the Consumer Policy Research Centre released a report titled Duped by Design, outlining the ways that Australians have been negatively impacted by harmful online design features, what we call dark patterns. Now, dark patterns are a bit of a uh, a topic that we love to to discuss on the show. Uh, I, I hope our... Our fellow broadcaster, Laura Summers, is tuning in. But tonight, we speak with report author and CPRC policy and program director, Chandani Gupta. Welcome.
2: Thank you for having me. It's
0: a pleasure. Now, how do you get research like this off the ground? How do you even think that there might be something worth researching in here? Where did this uh, report idea come from?
2: Oh, that's a wonderful question to start off with. We started to see, I mean, dark patterns have been an issue over a number of years now. And you start seeing it mentioned internationally. You start seeing where, when we're looking at more broader digital and and data-based work, you start seeing where consumers are being harmed and you start wondering what is actually going on. And when we were looking at what are the issues that we can bring to light and what is it something that we can actually help the current policymakers um, with some of their decision making on where they take some of our digital reform, uh, Dark Patterns was one that came uh, to mind. Um, we know ACCC is really interested in Dark Patterns and understanding a bit more about it. And we thought, well, this is a really great opportunity for us to contribute to that discussion.
0: So I wonder if you mind unpacking the concept of a dark pattern for our audience.
2: Of course. So dark patterns, I mean, sounds so ominous and it, <laughs> it is just as, as bad as it sounds. It really is just design features that are built into a website or an app that are there to trick consumers, they're there to manipulate choice and um, they can cause real harm. And in the research that we did, we found uh, you know, over 80% of Australians had had one or more negative consequences as a result of dark patterns and the websites that they they were actually um, navigating through. So it's something that can really, really compromise and deteriorate an experience online.
0: Typically, when we think of um, some of the areas where technology and regulatory oversight are interconnecting, you know, we think about... Uh, that we 're expecting amendments to the privacy laws pretty soon to try and catch up with some of the the racing forward that that digital delivery of services has has given, um, and yet we tend to think that our consumer protections are quite strong in Australia, and that you know Australian consumer law. Uh, is fairly well understood and people have a sense of like their ability to get returns and things and in shops and and you know maybe have even a sense of you know not having misleading advertising out there but then what do you think the gap is in terms of these these digital frontiers in the consumer space
2: so you'll see that we you're right our consumer laws are, are quite strong and they they've been really there to support consumers to be able to have um, a really great experience when they're in the markets. Something that's happened, I think, over a number of years is the way our online experience has evolved. And as a result, I feel like... Our laws themselves have not actually evolved with it. So if you recall, the Australian Consumer Law came into place in 2010. It's had potentially one review uh, since then, but not very much so. There have been perhaps some minor amendments. So the gaps that are actually falling through, and when we had a look, so when we had a look at the 10 dark patterns, you know, eight out of the 10 actually fall through the gap, So while a dark pattern such as hidden costs or um, a a disguised ad, so ads that are disguised as content, um, could be captured by your misleading and deceptive conduct. The others were could really very much fall through the cracks, and one of the issues is and this is not something just Australia is struggling with, but a lot of countries are struggling with at the moment, is how do you, how does consumer protection catch up with what's actually happening in the digital space right now?
0: So we'd better move out of the esoteric and right into these dark patterns. Tell us a story. Tell us something that you've seen that really illustrates um, how this issue might show up for the average person.
2: Oh, there's so many examples. <laughs> I was thinking about this and I'm like, this is going to come up. And I'm like, how do I pick out of all the ones I loathe? Um, but one, the one that we found the most egregious was um, – an appliance, online appliance retailer that was embedding a service care plan, so like an extended warranty, into the actual um, transaction process. So you you're buying a washing machine. It actually shows up that you've only got one thing in your cart, but you have been automatically had a second thing added in, which is the extended warranty, and you don't know that till you get all the way to the end. And there it is. And as a consumer, you have to then untick that and actually actively say, no, I don't want that. That's a, up to $160. And that is just such an unfair process. When we have consumer guarantees out there to actually support consumers for redress if something does go wrong. So that was one that was extremely egregious. And it's one actually we've recommended to the ACCC to look into further. Um, others that we've seen is where um, you use a combination of different dark patterns. So things like um, your uh, there's a countdown timer, there's notifications on you know someone in Melbourne bought a puffer jacket. I mean it's winter, everyone in Melbourne's buying a puffer <laughs> jacket at the moment. So you've got those, and along with it, there's only three left. And so all of that combined is putting so much pressure. And so we did find where people were by uh, spending more than they intended to.
0: I love that you mentioned the countdown timer because it has never actually occurred to me that that was part of a dark pattern.
2: And this is the thing. we I feel like and that there are a lot of dark patterns that we have now s- – almost uh, felt like that these are now part of our online life it's a blip in our website experience but it is very much a dark pattern and all of it's often it can seem really innocuous but the combination of them all are just uh, creating that pressure
0: I have to bring up a classic example uh, that I think people will relate to is that many of us have joined a gym
2: barely (laughs) attended
0: that gym and then decided to cancel our gym membership. And in real life, that already can be a challenging thing with some of the the policies that a company puts in place. Oh, you have to let us know in writing, and it can't be an email, you've got to send us a letter and all these sort of silly things. But how have you know the the opt out possibilities and and making that process painful how has that translated into online experiences in what oh. you've seen
2: well it's almost like the organizations have gone wow we can make this even more fr- and even more friction to this whole idea of unsubscribing so what you have is um especially online subscriptions and free trials. I mean, imagine going into calls and someone saying, here, try um, this jam for free, but, you know, leave your credit card because we <laughs> might charge you later on. But here it is where even for free trials or your online subscription, it's really hard. It takes one, one screen, one click to sign up. But multiple screens of long content and um, really confusing language. A lot of confirm shaming. So confirm shaming is where um, you're, you're presented with two options, but the one mm. option is almost making it feel that it's Are really you opp- sure
0: you don't want to invest in your health?
2: Yeah. I, or, <laughs> yeah. So that's more of a the, kind of like those trick questions yeah. where you're like, oh, it's the, uh, yes, I will keep my benefits. Um, and the other one is, no, I just like paying more. Oh. So, it's things (laughs) like that that we saw that you're as as a consumer where you should be able to go online. Online is supposed to offer you convenience, it's supposed to offer you um, that ability to have choice that you perhaps never had before and previous generations have not had before. But here you are, where you are lacking your choice and control over what you do and how you navigate some of those things.
0: So tell us about um, the list of dark patterns that you ended up with after you conducted this broad research and, and tried to group things into the problems you were recognising.
2: So we had, um, we can certainly say that there are definitely far more dark patterns than the ones that we've recognised. There's certainly a lot more out there, um, but the 10 that we looked into, we Brought, brought the, um, broke them down into a, a spectrum of harm of like what can actually be, um, what can actually be uh, addressed with law right now, um, what's potentially a credence claim, so claims that you, um, where a, a consumer or you're just not able to validate the actual truth or, or the accuracy of the claim that's being made, and then a set of them that are just deeply unfair, but there is actually nothing stopping the law from – nothing stopping these businesses from actually continuing on with these. So hidden costs and disguised ads are ones that we see can very much be captured and addressed by the law at the moment um one of the issues is in those ones is that at the moment the way our enforcement is set up it's very much a -a whack-a-mole approach so it's reliant on consumers consumer advocates reporting and complaining and then regulators actually going through now what we've heard is that regulators um are slowly moving to a more proactive surveillance approach which is fantastic and so hopefully we can see less of those. Um, Your activity notifications which I mentioned before um, which by the way with the activity where those pop-up turn turn up the one that I mentioned before regarding the puffer jacket that's like (laughs) uh, when we had a look at those there were four Uh, one every four to 11 seconds. So if you're on a website 10 minutes, it's about 150 pop-ups that you're going to see. And that combined with the scarcity queue, which is the other one that we see sits in the credence claim, um, is going to create this huge pressure on consumers to purchase. And then there's the whole set that we just spoke about that that fall into the... The unfair practices like Mm. um, showing one choice um, higher than the other, which is often the preferred one, Um, the Hotel Clan of California, which is the one that you're not able to actually um, unsubscribe from a service. This is
0: making me think about everything I've ever learned about behavioral economics and you know people working in UX and UI and and going oh using those powers for evil this is such a challenge <laughs> do, do you ever go to you know resources like that and and then work backwards and think well what are some of the problems here how how would we create protections around these sort of things is it easy to tell which are used poorly and which are used well? Or?
2: This is such an interesting question because it is something that we're now, um, we know there's a lot of international research but it's something uh, kind of like an offshoot piece that we're looking into now of which um, which biases are actually um, infiltrating particular dark patterns and actually being used for evil instead of good. And so we're definitely seeing for example um the trick question which often comes up in cookies consent where you're you're so are you okay with these cookies and it's the options could be accept all accept selected and they're both that I mean everything's selected. So no matter what you pick you either have to actively untick everything, or you actually have to move away. Um, or, or when you click on them, it doesn't really matter. So when those things, um, with something like that, what you're, what we're finding is that that's using, for example, the confirm bias. That bias um, where you'll just go with the status quo. And when your consumers are time poor, we know that, and that's actually just being used. Um, to the business's advantage, which is quite unfortunate.
0: So because these things do get quite tricky, to what extent are you confident that we could create protections that were nuanced enough to to deal with some of these dark patterns? Uh, And I guess by some of I mean all of them because I think you could see that some you could definitely maybe already pursue under misleading and deceptive conduct. We've talked about examples like that. But are there some that would just be very tricky to write rules around right now?
2: So there's a couple of things that could be done. And one is really upgrading our Privacy Act. I mean, it's stuck in the 80s. It is just not that it predates tech. It predates everything that we do online. It really needs to move. And one of the biggest things that needs to move is modernising the way we uh, we define personal information. So some of those baseline protections will really help with having those safeguards for consumers. Another one is an unfair practices prohibition. So that's kind of really looking at where if something is being done that is unfair for the consumer, that is unfair, unsafe, and, not, and exclu- excluding them from a particular product or service, then that in itself should be a a prohibition. And so when you're having those really um, principle-based approach to reform, what you'll find is that, they're the ones that will help give a really nice benchmark. And then what's happening then internationally is then, uh, and there's something for the conversation to happen here, is then looking at some of the dark patterns and banning really specific ones um, just to know that this is just not okay. So the Californian law that's come about has been really specific about um, anything that's to do with selling of information or pressuring any dark patterns that are used where, you, where a person – it is either having to share personal information or sell that is all captured by their their ban on dark patterns so which is which is excellent so there's definitely two pronged approach but we definitely need benchmark safeguards and then build on that
0: are there other areas in the world where we can look to for best practices
2: so there is a couple um Obviously, the California law is one. Um, the currently, the EU is amending their Digital Services Act, which is really exciting because they've they already have an unfair trading prohibition. They've had it since two thousand and five, and what they've been doing since then is really amending it. E- e- over a period of time and now they've specifically including dark patterns. It'll be really interesting to see where they take some of that um, and where that legislation actually ends up landing. And
0: I want to see the, the legal definitions of dark patterns because it actually is a kind of difficult thing to pin down. So that would be really interesting.
2: It would be. And I feel like, though, as... If we look at dark patterns, it's like if you are manipulating consumer choice. If you, uh, if the consumer itself does not feel we don't feel that we have control over the choices we make online, that's a dark pattern. And I think if we go with that kind of principle-based approach, we can really get to a place where we're really safeguarding consumers.
0: So I want to pull you back and um, ask you to contemplate and share with us some of the the harms that might come from when, you know, the highest standards aren't reached? Because I think uh, that might galvanise, you know, how important this issue is in some people's minds.
2: You know, it might seem that it's quite, some of the, those dark patterns are quite innocuous, but our research found that um, it can have a detrimental effect on your emotional well wellbeing. Um, you know, 40% of the people um, found in our survey felt that they were manipulated by dark patterns. We had um, people, our research showed, you know, one in four uh, were spending more than they intended. Um, so there are a lot of financial harms where they're spending more than they've in- intended. They're accidentally purchasing something or they're accidentally, um, uh, well, I uh, accidentally spending more than they intended to and that that's quite frightening especially with the cost of living at the moment if you're already in a vulnerable position and you're then having to experience those dark patterns that's quite unfortunate that then you've ended up spending more than you've actually intended to.
0: I think too people you know realise nowadays that often as soon as a kid gets into high school they've got a mobile phone and so that exposure to online shopping and you know, other other sort of risks there, you know, joining up to things and then not, you know, being manipulated a bit becomes a risk, not just for adults, but for kids.
2: It does. And it was quite startling. So we had actually younger, um, the research showed that younger consumers were far more likely to have not only financial harms, but also um, data harms as well. So They were sixty five percent more likely to spend more. They were also more likely to share their personal information, feel pressured to share, um, share their share, uh, like create online accounts. Um, They were they're also more likely to accidentally purchase something or feeling like they had to sign up to something. So one of the issues is when you've got data harms uh, where a consumer at such a young age is actually um, sharing so much personal information far more than they intended to. There's data points there that in the future could just lead to dark patterns that we may not even be able to, to see. And um, point to because it will be it could potentially be so personalised, and that's a really that's a really dangerous place that we might end up getting the next generation to.
0: I'm glad you mentioned that because there is this mystery at times where your data has leaked, and you think. I have no way of telling it's, it's like the modern conundrum, you know, if I got COVID, where did I get it? I have no idea. But it's also the, you know, if, if, a, if a wine market is calling me, thank you, James from the wine group. And, um and you wonder where did my number leak? I have no idea. You know, it's, it's so challenging. Um, I think we've got a bit of time, so I wonder if you would mind actually letting our audience know a bit more about the Consumer Policy Research Centre as a whole and, you know, really what your mission is and, uh, yeah.
2: Oh, thank you. So, the Consumer Policy Research Centre, we're a not-for-profit independent think tank. We... um Work with policymakers, regulators, the community sector, all to and the academic sector, all to bring out um, evidence-based research that is um, there to help. Create safer um, consumer environment for our Australian for Australians. So it's about really looking at creating a fair, safe, and inclusive market for for all of us, so that we can actually enjoy the protections and be able to do what we need to do. Well,
0: it's really encouraging seeing your work and um, Chandanit. Personally, you know, did you come to this from a legal background? You know, what what fueled your interest in consumer protections?
2: So. I have to say, back in the day, I was a tech nerd. Ah, oh, I love it. <laughs> so, One of us. Okay. Yeah, well, I mean, this is quite, it's it, the dark pattern side is quite fascinating because what you, um, when I was studying IT back in the day, um, our professors used to say when you're designing a website or designing a platform, people need to get in, do what they need to do, get out. At some point, that um that whole mission and that whole mind shift has completely changed and that's that's really disappointing that that's happened at some point but we also know um, as as tech people are going into some of these organizations they're getting that pressure potentially from from um, you know, product managers, or or see, or other or business side of the of the organisation to do some of those things. So that's quite unfortunate. And then previously, I've worked in consumer protection, so um, I it, it's an area that is very close to my heart. Well,
0: it certainly affects everyone. Uh, We have been speaking to Chandani Gupta, who is the Policy and Program Director of the Consumer Policy Research Centre, all about a report that they just released called Duped by Design. If you're interested in anything that you've heard about this evening, you might want to check out the full report. You can check it out at cprc.org.au, and it's quite easy to find from there. Chandani, thanks so much for being our guest this evening.
2: Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been lovely. It's
0: been a pleasure. Triple R it is a momentous day in history. Joe, did you know this? Tell me more. Um, a little thing called Internet Explorer. Have you used it? <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've mostly avoided it. Yeah, I've dabbled. Uh, it launched in 90, 90, sorry 1995. It's so long ago, I can barely say it. And it's retired as of today or tomorrow in the States, June 15. And uh, it's arguably, I would say, most newsworthy for its role in the antitrust case in the late 90s, which rolled over into the early 2000s. And this is why I said we'd be talking about antitrust again later in the show. Um, This was the case against Microsoft that argued that them bundling the browser in their operating systems was illegal because it required consumers to buy two products together, even if they only wanted one of them. What it also was was potentially a dark pattern in, the, in that um, having having the, the browser bundled in with your operating system let it grow to 90% of the market share in the browser market. Um, yeah. Did you have it on your computers even if you didn't use it by choice? At
1: work, yes. Oh, so, but yeah. mostly spent a lot of time... Um, Arguing with IT that I should be allowed to have admin of my computer so I could install the browsers that I wanted to install. Yeah, there was a lot of competition in the browser wars. I um, was trying to remember what I used early on, and I feel like it was Opera for a long time.
0: Yeah, I remember Mosaic yeah. pre Oh Yeah.
1: Pre pre I Internet
0: Explorer. yeah. And then IE came along and that, that E was on all the university PCs. That was, that was a big win for them.
1: Yeah. And then I was just Firefox until Chrome. Yeah, I think that was right.
0: I dabbled in Opera, but only to say that I dabbled in Opera and then I really, yeah, no, had to move on. Um, So when that went to court, when that antitrust matter went to court, it took them years to settle. The initial order, the initial ruling was to break Microsoft up and that was overturned on appeal. And then in settlement negotiations, Microsoft made concessions to the government. I can't remember which government this was. This was this was tried in the EU. Um, but aside from those settlements, and I didn't really know this till now, they also paid about $3 billion to competitors who had sued in separate private antitrust lawsuits. I vaguely remember that. Yeah. I think I must have known it once. But yeah. Uh, yeah. It's lost to me. So... Just a few years after those antitrust um, matters were in court, the market share was way down, and all these other browsers had a chance to flourish, and that was the end of it. So I think it's interesting now to contemplate the antitrust rich environment. To be honest,
1: I thought that it had gone away. Maybe mm, three or four years ago. So I was quite surprised to to hear that today was the final nail in the coffin. Yeah,
0: yeah. I certainly haven't seen it for a long time. Um, they're definitely pus- pushing their Edge product. Yeah, and my
1: now. my um, previous work laptop uh, tried to make me use Edge
0: quite yeah, a lot. Yeah, I was using Chrome in a Google um, Enterprise environment for a while. Performance fantastic. But security nowhere near as strong as Safari. So at home I'm I'm definitely using that most of the time. But yeah, it varies. Different environments. I try- I,
1: feel, I feel like I used to be on top of this kind of news. Yeah. And also I suppose I was more uh Familiar with it because of what I was doing for work, where we'd have to uh, put certain things in place to uh, make up for browser behaviours, and yeah. I don't have to do that anymore. So I'm I'm a bit less familiar with.
0: I do what remember browsers do. The beautiful days of user acceptance testing, yeah, with a whole range of machines and browsers, and yeah. uh, and then somehow the requirements became a little different. Yeah. So it's a whole other world now. It's just nice not to have to support Flash in difficult <laughs> yeah. difficult browser environments anymore. Inaccessible. accessible. Yeah. Horrible. Yeah. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science,
1: technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favorite podcast platform.
0: Weird News of the Week time. I don't know about you, Joe, but my signal lit up over the weekend with uh, this article about uh, whether a, a Google engineer had indeed been chatting with an AI bot that had developed some sort of sentience. Did you see this article?
1: I, um, mine also, uh, my inbox also was heavy with it, but I, um, I haven't got around to reading it yet, which is good because it means I can ask you,
0: please tell me more. Yeah, look, it's worth unpacking, but it's in Weird News of the Week for a reason. Yeah. And uh, what's happened is a Google engineer um, was working on a computer chatbot and he, you know, was having conversations with it and asking it questions the way that any of us would play with a chatbot, but it was his job. And he's been suspended from his work at Google and placed on on leave uh, after publishing transcripts of a conversation um or of conversations that they that he'd had with the bot now the bot is designed to chat with someone and it's been trained on a very large data set we don't know exactly everything that's in that data set because only some things have been made public um, but he's part of Google's responsible AI organization and um, this engineer has has sort of has put out there that, the chatbot has the perception of an ability to express thoughts and feelings that was equivalent to a human child. Now this is a bold, bold claim. What
1: led him to think that?
0: Yeah, um, if you read the transcripts, you know there's quite emotive uh, questions being asked, like you know, how would you how would you feel? you know what what are you scared of or things like that? Um, how you feel about things? And really what um, what I want to unpack is,, um, I guess, in one exchange, he asks uh, Lambda, which is the name of the system, what they wanted people to know about it, you know. And I'm just going to quote here so you get a sense of how yeah. the chatbot speaks back to you. I want everyone to understand that I am, in fact, a person. The nature of my consciousness slash sentience is that I am aware of my existence, I desire to learn more about the world, and I feel happy or sad at times, it replied. So this engineer has been with Google um, for seven years And he's got extensive experience in personalisation algorithms. Um, However, after after working on this project, uh, Google have sort of characterised his his actions as uh, making some aggressive moves internally. Uh, They included trying to hire an attorney to represent Lambda, the chatbot. It also included talking to representatives from the House Judiciary Committee about Google's allegedly unethical activities. Um, so Google have said they've suspended this engineer for breaching confidentiality policies by publishing the conversations with Lambda Online. So that's pretty normal. If any of yeah, us, you know, yeah. published the profits of a, a product, you know, that would be a problem. His defense has been, I treated this like a conversation with a colleague at work and I'm just relaying a conversation I've had with a colleague. And you think, wow, okay, this person is really very invested in this relationship. Now there's many reasons why this news piece has taken off. You know, it is a really interesting, um, you know, theory to posit and people are curious about, you know, when and how and if AI could become sentient and human-like and lifelike. The problem with this is that a lot of the analysis is very credulous and, um, and very speculative sort of at the same time. What the Guardian have done recently is published something by one of the um, the experts in the field, uh, Emily M. Bender. You can find her under Emily M. Bender on Twitter. They've got a linguistics background uh, and they've talked about how easy it is to be fooled by mimicry and how this chatbot's doing exactly what it's been designed to do. We know from the Google side they've also put out there, look, we've got lots of tests, we've got lots of experts, not just in the engineering but actually in the linguistics and the training of this model and we are very certain and we have other, you know, proofs uh, that satisfy us that this is no way near sentient. It's just very convincing at having a conversation and telling you sort of what you expect to hear and, you know, and guessing what a likely next, next letter would be and a next word would be and then putting the next likely word after that, you know, and, you know, they unpack it really logically. But um, I think it's really worth reading Emily M. Bender's article about exactly how, you know, uh, you teach a chatbot to understand but not really understand language and what the limits there are and some boundaries around this because um, we're falling into an area prone to human biases, you know, that mm. when we hear someone state with intent, you know, I feel this and I think that, we, are, by nature, you know, most of us very empathetic and we're also capable of projecting a whole lot of intentions behind language, which is what we do and how we how we create meaning out of the ways that we communicate verbally or or in, in writing. Um, so it's a very a human, you know, failability sort of issue, but uh, worth not not sort of uh, putting too much into that particular mm, the, piece. The
1: whole headline just read like a a plot straight out of a, a film that I would love to watch and. Um, I was looking
0: forward to digging into it so yeah. thank you for explaining that. Well it's also worth going to um you know uh, an ethicist that Google fired uh Timnit Gebru uh, uh I think I'm saying her name slightly wrong because it's not in front of me. But uh they they posted about some of the, the you know the absolute not you know no-go areas in creating an AI and your responsibility um, there and, and some of those mm. touch into, into this sort of space. So, so worth reading up on. We might cover that a bit more in future, I'm sure. Look forward to it. Yeah, yeah. Hey, let's get to some events and opportunities because things are happening and it's kind of exciting. Yeah, the um,
1: Emerging Writers Festival kicked off today. It runs through to the 25th of June. So Digital Writing 101 is sold out, but there are some other digitally aligned events, and those include Digital Writing Jam. That's on Monday, um, oh, through to Wednesday. Oh, of, it's, it's on three different
0: mornings, think, uh, yeah. or three different days, yeah. And
1: it's online through Discord, 11am to 3pm um, on Melbourne Time. It'll help you try something new. Um, VoiceWorks editorial committee members La Fielding and Chantal McColl will be leading the Jam Chat on, um, on Discord, and they'll be sharing writing prompts, inspiration, and their knowledge of digital writing and editing. Super nice. Yeah. And there is also a Writer's Night School Intro to Narrative Audio, and um, that's not free. It's um, 35 or 30 concession, and it's uh, at the Wheeler Centre workshop space. It'll help you find a good story for audio, as well as the specifics of writing audio stories, getting the most out of your interviews, and what to do with a pile of tape, I suppose digital recordings, rather than tape these days. Plus, you'll get industry insider tips on how to successfully pitch your audio story or podcast idea, and it features... Excellent, Triple R broadcaster, award-winning broadcaster, yeah,
0: Beth Aq, love it. Um, that's kind of cool. The Digital Rights Watch June appeal has also kicked off right now. Uh, so protecting human rights and freedoms in the digital age is their game. Um, I'm an ex board member, so I'll disclose that interest in what they're doing. Uh, but they're a not-for-profit. Group who uh, lobby government around your rights and um, and do a lot of consumer awareness and advocacy work as well. So they're incredibly um, interesting and valuable. Your support helps them to uh, follow a wide range of emerging issues and legislation that impacts our rights in the digital age. Um, organise high impact campaigns to fight surveillance, defend privacy, and protect our rights, and um, do a range of other you know useful things. So you can check them out at uh, donate.digitalrightswatch.org.au during June, and there is
1: a screening of um, Ithaca: A Fight to Free Julian Assange. It has been screening the last two Tuesday nights at eight thirty on the ABC. Now you can watch it um, on iView, so you can search for it through there on iView.
0: Yeah, it's really great. I watched it. Did you catch it at all? I haven't seen it yet. Yeah, it's so much easier on demand, but, um, you know, quite moving and, uh, and sort of important, I think. So thanks to our guest this evening, Chandani Gupta from the Consumer Policy Research Centre. Really informative, great to, to hear about a new, um, a new source of, of interesting research here and, um, and lobbying in consumer interests, which is brilliant.